How is everybody? And Spencer's killing it with those videos, man. Those videos are awesome. I, I would, yeah, you can clap for him. He's not here this weekend. <laughs> I think he's out of town. He's on vacation. It's funny because I say we make great videos. We don't do anything. Spencer does it all, and we just like get to like benefit from it, you know. So, uh, okay. So if you've never been here before, we are in the Gospel of John. If you have no idea what that is. If you have a Bible, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. So it's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're on the fifth chapter today, and we've been going over what I like to call uh, just fundamental things. The last couple of months, gosh, it's been a couple of months since we started John now, very just fundamental, foundational, infrastructure-type things that we all need to know. And if you're a new believer, or maybe you're not a believer in here today, it's great that you're kind of jumping in at this time, because again, we're just talking about the core things. We're talking about the basic things. If you have been a Christian for a long time, guys, it's really good to go back and hit on those things more. Sometimes we forget about the fundamentals and we try to build up our faith more, but we don't have a good bedrock. We don't have a good cornerstone on which to build our faith. So it's important to go back, okay? So last week, we talked about something extremely simple. We talked about a royal official that came to Jesus and faith. And what we got to see was this. We talked about when we position ourselves to hear the Word of God, not just coming to church on the weekend, but reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God. When we position ourselves to hear the Word of God, and when we obey the Word of God, it changes us. So it's not just being hearers of the Word, as James said, it's also being a doer of the Word, okay? So this week, we're going to talk about some more fundamental stuff. And guys, we take this for granted sometimes. We all seem to understand or, or think we understand that we know who Jesus is, but we're going to talk about what the identity of Jesus is and why it's exceptionally important that we remember who Jesus is. Even in Christianity, we've confused, we have kind of a skewed perception of who Christ is, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Okay, so you should have got a notes handout. Um, if you didn't get a notes handout, if you get the version app, I think everyone's got a smartphone except for Isaiah that's in the worship band. He's, he's still locked in 1998. But... Uh, Everyone else, <laughs> you can download the YouVersion app, and um, it has all the notes on it and all the scripture and everything. It's a very, very handy tool if you've never used that. Okay, so I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this, and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us. Everyone doing okay? It's good to see you. Isn't it nice to have a church community? It is so important. It is so important. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Let me pray. We'll get into this, and um, we'll see what happens, okay? Father, Lord, I love you. God, I want to thank you for your word. I think we take it for granted sometimes, God, that when we're confused, when we don't know where to turn for answers, Lord, you've literally written it all down for us. Thank you. Thank you, God. I pray, Lord, that you bless us, God, not because we've earned it, God, but because you love us and because we need you so bad, Lord. Bless us today by hearing your word, studying your word, and applying your word, hopefully, in our lives, God. Lord, we pray that you touch every other church in our city. Pray that you bless them. Pray that you bless their leadership, God, and their congregations. Pray that you bless the nonprofits in our town that are also advancing your kingdom, God, through the social justice that they do. Lord God, pray that you keep your hand on us today. Open up our ears, Lord. Let our antennas be in sync and in tune with what you're doing right now, God. Open up our eyes, Lord, so we can see how you're moving and how we should respond. God, we thank you. We love you. We lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 5. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to, to break it down. We start off with a very interesting kind of historical background that I'm going to tell you about here in a second, and I'll bring it up, okay? Here we go. 
After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lamed, and paralyzed. Now, pause there for a second. A lot of your translations will not have the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. And if your translation does have that, it probably has brackets around it, okay? And I'll explain what that means here in a second, all right? Blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time to stir up the water. Then the first one got in after the water was stirred up and recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, knew he had been there for a long time. Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Okay, so if you haven't been here, Jesus has been up in North Israel. He's been traveling around in North Israel. He's coming back, and it says he goes up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. He went up into Jerusalem. So they were in the capital city, if you will, and they were there for a festival. We don't know what festival. It's irrelevant. People argue about it. We don't know what festival it was. It's not important. But while he was there, Jesus went to a popular, quote-unquote, healing site, okay? He went to this healing site called the Pool of Bethesda, and he encountered a man who had been an invalid. He had been sick and was unable to walk for almost four decades, for 38 years. And he would hang out around the Pool of Bethesda, hoping he could get into these magical waters, and then he would be healed. Now, here's where we get into some interesting stuff. The story of the Pool of Bethesda is an example of how a ton of people misinterpret the Scripture. The angel that stirred the waters in verse 4 is not in the original text that John wrote. It was added in lots of years later, hundreds of years later, because there was a Roman superstition about an angel that would stir up the waters. The fact of the matter is God did not send an angel to stir up the waters, and I've heard preachers preach on this, and it's not good historically. Historically, the pool of Bethesda was, a, was, was um, kind of like a scam that you would see on late night television. If you pour this water on your head or put your hand on the screen, you'll be miraculously healed if you send 1995 or whatever. This is essentially the same thing. There was a greater pool that would pour into the pool of Bethesda and it would make the water move. And what people would do is they would sell places along the pool and they would tell the sick that if you can get into the water when it moves, that's an angel doing that. And if you get in, you'll be healed. It was essentially a scam. So the original text does not have that. That's why your Bible has it in brackets because John didn't write that. That was added in later by people who believed the Roman superstition about the angel in the pool of Bethesda. So what we see is this. Jesus approaches this man who has been laying by this pool and he's been sick for a long time. And we see, just like when Jesus encountered Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the royal official, and now this man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus is not just the savior of the world. Jesus is the savior of the individual. He loves people, and he goes and has a one-on-one conversation. And he asks this sick man the million-dollar question. And quite frankly, the question that he asks all of us is, do you want to get, get better? 
Do you want to change? Do you want things to be different than the way they are right now? And again, essentially all of us will be asked this question by God at some time. Jesus said he didn't come for the sick, or he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. Now, the fact of the matter is this, all of us are sick. It's whether if we acknowledge if we're sick or not. So Jesus approaches us just like he did this man and says, do you want to get better? I'm here for the sick. Okay, so the man is laying there, this man who's an invalid who cannot walk, and he presents a problem. Jesus says, do you want to get better? And then he comes up, here's his excuse for why he has not gotten better yet. His response to Jesus' question is that he was unable to get to the magical waters. He couldn't do it, right? He couldn't walk, and whenever he starts to shuffle over that way, when the water stirs, someone always beats him in there. Now, I'm going to say some things today, and I'm not picking on you. We're talking about us. We're just being honest. This may sting a little bit, but how many of us in here use excuses of our circumstances to why we haven't changed? How many of us in here say, well, it's because my parents did this. I'm like this. Well, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I have had these things happen to me. And we have all these excuses of our circumstances of why we haven't changed. Or as Christians, sometimes we become quite superstitious as well. We believe if we get to that revival or if that guy can touch me or breathe on me or whatever the case may be, or if I can just get this thing or wear this trinket or whatever the case may be, that I will be healed. So we make excuses or we say, well, I haven't been to this place or I haven't done this thing. That's why I haven't changed. Now, listen, Jesus isn't cold-blooded. He's not a jerk. He understands. He's empathetic to the man that's been there for 38 years. He knows that life is not easy. Gosh, Jesus had an extremely rough life. He was nailed to a cross. And so he knows that hardships over a long period of time suck the hope out of us. He knows that. And he knew that. But Jesus is the master at intervening in those kinds of situations. Now listen, if we're honest, what we've all done in our lives is we go as far as we can go without anyone's help, including God. We reach our wits end, we hit our rock bottom, and that's when, that's when Jesus steps into the equation. It's where human ability ends is where the miraculous comes into play. That's when God starts to do his best work when we realize, wow, my best is not good enough. My best will not get me to where I want to go. I need a savior. I need a helper. So Jesus probably chose this man on purpose. Of course he chose this man on purpose. And so Jesus shows up. He found a man that had been sick for a long time, almost four decades and he's going he's gonna to do something to this man to prove a point to all of us and to him. And so there's some of you in here. You haven't deserved the great things you've had in life, the blessings you've had in life. But God has reached out and saved people that are extremely messed up. And that proves a point. It gives God glory. It shows others around us that if we're broken and we can be made whole, they can be too. And so there is a point that Christ is making in this time. And so I love Jesus' attitude, right? Okay, you're going you're to find this uh, disrespectful, but I don't mean it that way. As we get further into Gospels, Jesus gets a little sassy at times, and we see a little bit of sass in chapter 5. And so they're on kind of the, the edge of this pool of Bethesda that this man cannot get into. And if the pool was God's agent for healing, if the story of the angel was true, if God sent an angel to stir up waters, Jesus would have just helped him to the waters if that was the method he wanted to use. But he doesn't. He basically says to the man, you don't need the superstition. You don't need the water. You need me. Get up, walk. Get up, pick up your stuff and walk. And what we see is this. 
We don't need to necessarily trek to foreign lands or be touched by a prophet or wear a certain thing or pray to the saints or anything like that. What we need is Jesus. That's the source of healing. And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or rude, but in our Christian culture now, even today, we think that we have to be in a certain building or a certain person has to do something for us. And that's not it. We put a lot of stock in revivals. And I'm not saying revivals are bad or pouring of oil on our heads. I know the Bible says that have the elders of the church anoint you with oil, but there's nothing magic about the oil. It's olive oil. We cook with it, right? At least I cook with it. There's, there's nothing magical about the oil. What we need is a relationship with Christ. That's what heals us. That's what restores us. That's what makes life different is having a relationship with him. And so what Jesus does in chapter five, though, is he messes with my theology a little bit. Don't you hate it when Jesus does that, right? You believe something about him and he's like, yeah, that's actually not how I work all the time and messes with your theology. Well, he does that in chapter five. And the reason why it messes with my theology is the man that Jesus walked up to and healed had no faith, none. He didn't even know who Jesus was, right? He's chilling out by the pool. Jesus walks up and says, hey man, you're healed. Get up, walk. This guy didn't even know who he was. The complete opposite of the man that had tremendous faith in the chapter before it. That guy traveled, the Roy official traveled 15 miles uphill because he knew if he encountered Jesus, Jesus would heal his son. This guy wasn't even asking for anything. So what we see in this lesson is that Jesus does what Jesus pleases. He doesn't need our permission. And sometimes he reigns on the just and the unjust. So I'm jumping ahead, ahead of myself. We need to be careful not to compare ourselves to, to other people. Because sometimes people may get healed, they may be blessed, but that does not mean that they have a relationship with God. And so we need to be careful that we don't become self-righteous and compare ourselves with other people. So we see in this lesson just so far, we haven't even gotten that much into it. John said in chapter one that all of us receive grace after grace. And so we see this man that doesn't even have faith yet, gets blessed, gets healed, walks away. He's about to cause a firestorm in Jerusalem too. But whether we view our redemption as us finding Jesus or Jesus finding us, what it boils down to is none of us have earned his grace. None of us have earned salvation, and he blesses us regardless, though. And so the other thing I just said a minute ago is we have to be careful not to compare ourselves. That's what self-righteousness is. When I look at you and say, well, I, I live a bit, little bit better than them. God must love me more, and I'm doing better. Or, or if we look at somebody, well, they have more things than I have, so God must love them more. That's the prosperity gospel. That's crap. Anyways, <laughs> we look at people and say, they have more than us, so God must love them more. It's not, it's not swearing or anything if I whisper it. So anyways, and what we need to be careful is if we look at people who seem to have easier lives than us or even have been blessed by God, it does not necessarily mean that they have a repentant heart. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a relationship with God. He reigns on the just and he reigns on the unjust as well. Okay, next part. You guys still with me? Excellent. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Get this. 
After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went in and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Okay, so Jesus healed the invalid man, the man who was sick, on the Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was Saturday. I joked around last night with the Saturday crew. I'm just like, hey, you guys are better Christians than the Sunday crew, but don't tell them that, and here I am, right? So anyways, that was a joke, by the way. So the Sabbath was on Saturday, and in the Old Testament, on Saturday, you had to observe this day, and there was a ton of rules that you had to follow. You could not do certain things on the Sabbath day, and it was punishable by death if you broke them, okay? Now, in the New Testament, the idea of Sabbath is very, very different. It's not a certain day that is more holy than any other days. Paul actually cleared that up when he said, there's not certain times that are more holy than others. The Sabbath in the New Testament, since Jesus has come, is a mindset. It's a way of life. It's not just a day, one day a week that we set aside. It's making time to rest in the Lord. It's making time to uh, uh, meditate on God and to read the Word of God and to relax and to spend kind of intimate time with Him in our Christian walk. Now, the reason why we like the Old Testament idea of Sabbath better is if we're just being honest, it's easier to follow rules than it is to build relationships. Think about it. It's easier to follow a list of rules than to build a relationship, but relationships are more effective. Relationships are deeper. Relationships are better. And that's what Jesus wants. That's why he said all of the teachings of the Old Testament can be boiled up or boiled into two different thoughts, relationship with God, relationships with people. That's what he said, love God, love people. Okay, so Jesus knew it was Saturday, right? He knew he had broken the rules that the men had created about the Sabbath. And what, the reason why Jesus intentionally healed this man and told him to get up and take his mat and walk, therefore breaking the Sabbath, the reason why he did that is Jesus was in the process of taking back something that had been robbed from him. The Sabbath day was a time of intimacy with God, right? Originally, it started off as a very good thing, but it became legalistic. And they started tacking on all these rules, 39 just crazy rules of things you could not do on the Sabbath. And so that intimacy that was lost to rules, Jesus was going to take back. And for four chapters, Jesus and the Pharisees argue about the Sabbath. They argue about what goes on on the Sabbath, who has authority over the Sabbath, who sets the rules for the Sabbath, and they debate this, and it gets very, very heated. So there's a lot of stuff that, that people said you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Couldn't cook, you couldn't clean, couldn't have sex with your spouse, you couldn't travel certain distances, all these different things you couldn't do. So when the Jewish leaders saw that this man was walking, he was working, right? This guy's got healed, and he's just like strutting his stuff around Jerusalem, right? He's walking, and the Pharisees, listen, He's been paralyzed for 38 years. They didn't care that he had been transformed. They cared that he had broken the rules. And this is what religion does. Religion values tradition over transformation. And that's not okay. What I mean is this. People, they come up to you and say, man, I got delivered from cocaine addiction. Well, it wasn't in our church. You didn't get baptized into our church. That's garbage, guys. We're baptized into the family of God, right? We're talking about the greater kingdom. And just because it didn't happen the way a certain denomination or even our church, our culture, if it goes against even what our culture teaches, but it glorifies God and people are being transformed. Man, we got to get over our man-made traditions 
and we just want people's lives to be changed. But they missed it. Dude's walking for the first time in 40 years, and they're just like, wait a second, are you working? It's Saturday. It is Saturday. <laughs> so what we see, it's an interesting, this whole situation is extremely interesting. And what we see is this, Jesus slipped away, right? So when they even asked him, who told you to do this? He goes, I don't even know the guy's name. He had slipped away. Later on, this is so important. Jesus pursues this guy for a second time. A second time, Jesus goes after him and he says, hey man, look, I healed you, you're well. Now, see that you stop sinning. Look, your physical body has been touched. Now, what's really important is we need to make sure that your heart and your head are clear. We need to make sure that your heart is good, that you're not sinning anymore, that you're changing your thoughts and your actions. And here's what we learn from this. It's not enough to just have that initial contact with Jesus like a lot of churches have taught. We just need to have that initial contact and feel something. It's more than that. After we have that initial contact, we then have to re-engage Jesus. We have to follow him. We have to commit to him. We have to change our course of action and build a relationship with him. That's how we're really saved. Later on in the gospel, there's a time where a man is laying there and Jesus walks up and says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's disappointed because they wanted to see a miracle, right? They wanted something fancy. They wanted fireworks and it's got to pop up and throw his crutches, right? Or something like that. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, hey, what's more important, his soul or his body? And so what we learn here is this, even more important than the man being physically healed, God addresses the heart. God addresses the heart and the actions. So here's what's crazy. Again, we see, look who's pursuing who in this story. This man two times has not looked for Jesus. Jesus is looking for him. So we often talk about finding God like Jesus is playing hide and seek with us or something, right? <laughs> I found you. He's like hiding behind a door. Oh, you got me. <laughs> we often talk about finding God or looking for Jesus as if all the work initially lies on us. And that's not always the case. Listen, it is important to know, guys, and if you're not a believer in here, this is so important for you to hear. It is important for you to know that God is running after you. God is looking for you. God is relentlessly pursuing you. And now when he finds us, he lets us choose. We have a choice, but he predestined that he has this encounter with us, and then we're left with the choice. So what happens is many of us fail to see that God pursues us because we are so distracted. We have so much going on, right? I bet when I get to my phone after service, I bet I have 30 or 40 notifications, things that I have to check, emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages and text messages and phone calls. And we get bombarded, all of us. And we have so much distraction around us. Or maybe we're selfish. We're so in our own bubble and we're so always focused about us that we don't see that God is relentlessly trying to get our attention. Or, guys, this one's gonna sting a little bit too. Some of us have such a victim mentality that we wear what has been done to us as a badge and we find our identity in it. How many people do you meet? Hey, come to church with me. No, a church hurt me, man. I've been hurt by a church. Look at these scars. I've been hurt. Guys, let's talk like adults. We've all been hurt. None of us will walk out of this life unscathed without scars. We have all been hurt. We have all been damaged. Now, if you quit every time someone hurts you, you wouldn't be able to go to restaurants, have family, have a spouse, have children. You wouldn't be able to function in the world. So some of us need to grow up 
and take personal responsibility for our lives. We need to build some bridges. We need to forgive some people. We need to reach out and have some conversations before we just start cutting off our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Thank you. Some of us miss God's pursuit because we're ignorant. And I don't mean that mean. We haven't read the word. We haven't been in an environment to hear the word of God or to feel the pursuit of God. Or maybe some of us have insecurities. I do. I'm very insecure. Or maybe we don't know how to receive love. I'm not very good at that either. I'm not very good at showing it sometimes, and I'm not very good at receiving it sometimes. And so there's all these different things that keep us from seeing that God is relentlessly running after us. Now, here's the weird thing that messes with my theology in this story. I talked about it earlier. Is this man was sitting there having no interest in Jesus, and Jesus found him, right? It was predestined that they have this conversation, that he got healed, and they had these encounters with Jesus, right? It's predestined. Now, there is one camp of people that say, Romans 8, we are all predestined. There's nothing you can do about it, right? God, who, who, he, God has foreknowledge of everything, therefore he's predestined all of us. There's nothing we can do about it. And whoever gets saved, it's just God's grace. Then there's another camp of people who say, well, Revelation 3, we have a choice in the matter. Now, what does the Bible teach? It teaches both. Are we predestined? Yes. Do we have a choice? Yes. And so it teaches both of these things. And now where we get caught in the mud is we have two camps of people that argue and debate and waste so much precious time debating with each other that we forget to tell the world about Jesus. The point isn't are we, free, are we predestined or do we have free will? The point is do you have a relationship with Christ? And if you have a relationship with Christ, it doesn't matter if you have free will or predestination. You're going to be saved because you're connected with Him. So we need to use our time better to teach people about the love and grace and relationship they can have with God, okay? All right. We used to do it next class. We'd have, ne we'd have questions at the end. And before I kind of made this rule, like you can't ask about certain things like eternal security and predestination, people would always raise their hands and like, Corey, can you explain predestination? Beads of sweat would bubble up on my head. And I'm like, no, we're just not going to go there, right? So sometimes we just waste so much energy on, on, these, on these arguments. Last part, guys. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I'm working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing, and He will show Him greater works than these, so you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to everyone He wants to. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is important at the end. Anyone who does not honor the Son, Jesus, does not honor the Father who sent Him. Okay, so here's the snowball effect. Here's the chain reaction that takes place in this chapter. The issue of the man carrying his mat led to the bigger issue of you can't work on the Sabbath day. 
Now, who made those rules was mankind and not God. So since you couldn't work on the Sabbath day, then that led to the bigger question of who makes the rules about Sabbath? Who has the authority over Sabbath? Now, what we've done, and it sounds like I'm just beating us up today, and I'm not trying to, but what we've done, if we're honest, is we've brought a little bit of this mentality into the modern day church. The way we've done that is we equate going to church as the same as being a good Christian. We say if we go to church 52 weeks a year that we are good Christians. And your Christianity is not going to be gauged on how we act in church. Our Christianity is going to be gauged on how we treat our spouse on Thursday and how we treat our kids on Friday and how we treat our coworkers on Monday morning when we're not feeling good or they're extra rude. That's when it's going to be judged. So our relationship with Christ is more important throughout the week than even it is us gathering together. Now, that's not to say that church attendance is bad. It's good that you're here. I would argue that the Bible mandates that the Christian be here. In Hebrews, it says, don't forsake this. This is vitally important. And the community that the church brings is vitally important. Let me tell you a story real quick. There's a young lady that comes to this church. She's been coming for years. Love her to death. And she's got a good support structure here. A lot of friends at this church. Her, her, she's got people that are like family in this church. Her brother was murdered last week. We've done three funerals in the last two weeks. That's not even, or no, less than two weeks. It's about 10 days. We did three funerals. And this one we didn't even do the funeral for, but she came into my office early one morning and told me that this had happened. And then she has to go back and tell her younger sister. Awful, awful. But as we got to talking, I was like, hey, do you, do you have people to talk to? Yeah, I got this person, this person, this person, this person. I've got this group and I've got this organization. That I work, all this stuff around her. I said, okay, well, financially, are you okay? Well, yeah, we've got all these people from the church pitching in. And I said, you know, our church will help with whatever costs. And in the middle of us talking, I looked at her and I said, aren't you so happy that you have a church family? And she goes, yeah, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have a church. I don't know. And it's times like that we need the church so much. Whenever Christians say they don't need the church, that is not biblical. That is not biblical. We need each other. But listen, when we start making our faith legalistic though, and when we start thinking that Sunday is holier than Saturday or Saturday is holier than Tuesday, when we start doing that, we run the risk of making our salvation on our works, not on His grace. We start taking it into our hands, and that is unhealthy, that is dangerous if we start to do that. Okay, so Jesus claimed the authority of God. Here's something important. It was not the good deeds of Jesus that got Him crucified. Even nowadays, we all love Jesus' social justice and that he was a great teacher and a nice guy. Even today, people will say that. That's not why people hated Jesus. The reason why people hated Jesus is he claimed to be God. That's what got him killed. One of the things he says in the part that I just read is he says, my father is working and I'm working also, which means Jesus was saying he was claiming deity and claiming that everything he does is an emulation, a mirror image of what the Father is doing. Therefore, he was elevating himself to be God. And so if he elevates himself to be God, that means that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath day. So it's clear. Verse 18 says, this is why the Jews began trying to kill him even more. Do you find that funny? Jesus, they thought, was breaking a 10 commandment, so they were gonna kill him, which breaks another 10 commandment. But hypocrisy is often in the middle of religion like that. So anyways, 
They thought uh, that they wanted to kill him even more because he was claiming to be equal to God. Now, what they thought Jesus was doing initially was this. They initially thought that Jesus was breaking Deuteronomy 6.4. If you talk to any Jew, even today, this is the most important passage in all of the Old Testament. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. The reason why that's so important, even to us today, is it shows there is not a multiplicity of gods. There is one God, one God, monotheism. And what the Jews thought is Jesus was a polytheist, that God, the Jewish God, was here, and Jesus claimed to be this kind of competing but equal God. And that's not it, that's not it at all. He didn't claim to be separate from that God. He claimed to be that God. Look at what John chapter 10 says, little spoiler alert. Jesus replied, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these do you want to kill me for? He asked the, the Pharisees. And this is what they say. We're not stoning you for the good things you did. Let me rephrase it in modern day vernacular. We don't hate Jesus because of how nice of a guy he is and the good things he did. We hate him because he's claiming to be God. It's still like that today. We love hippie Jesus that never tells us that anything's wrong. We don't like Jesus that is judge, Jesus that is creator, Jesus that is Lord, but that's who he is. And so if we make that assumption or if we claim that though, the next verse can be confusing. Jesus says, I can't do anything on my own. I can only emulate the Father. Now, what that shows us is the 33 years that Jesus was on earth, he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. And verse 19 and 20 show the Son of Man part of Jesus. He's not just the Son of God, he's also the Son of Man. And like a father teaches his son to do everything he does, Think of like doubles tennis or something like, and so you have the father teaching the son to, to do a, a, a backhand or a forehand, move like he does and serve like he does, so much so that the son just knows exactly how the father moves. That's how Jesus was when he was on earth. Everything he did was the exact will of God. And what he says to them is this, Man, Jesus has some attitude sometimes. He says, if you think this stuff is big, you're going to be amazed. I haven't done anything yet. I'm going to start raising the dead. In fact, you're going to kill me and I'm going to raise myself. He says, you're going to see even greater works than this. We're about to see some pretty crazy stuff is what he was saying to them. And so the whole point of this last part, it's very, very simple. I told you fundamentals. It is this, is that Jesus is the key. He's the one. And John explains in these verses that the only way to know who the true God is is through the Son, Jesus Christ. That no one can approach God unless it is through the avenue, the pathway of Jesus. Now, before I got saved in 2002, I was essentially a universalist. I believed, like the old, uh, like Baha'i or Unitarianism, I believed that there is a wheel and all the different thoughts, all the different spokes lead to one God, whatever that God was, that all of them were good, right? Hinduism's good, Islam is good, Christianity's good, Unitarianism is good, all these things are good, right? That they all lead to the same thing. That's what I used to believe. Now, the problem with that is almost every major religion contradicts that, including Christianity. Jesus is very blunt in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way. I'm not one of the ways. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the center. No one gets to the Father except through me. And so the revelation that Jesus is the one that gives life the thing that had him crucified, the straw that broke the camel's back, again, I'm, I'm spoiling it right now, is when Jesus stood in front of the Sanhedrin council and they said, who are you? He just said, I am. And what he meant by that is 
The same thing that God said to Moses in the burning bush when he asked, who are you? He said, I am. So Jesus was essentially saying, I'm the creator. I am the father. When one of disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, show us the father, Jesus' response was, you're looking at him. It's me. I and the father are one. Now, this shocked the Jews that he would make this assumption, but it shouldn't have shocked the Jews. Why? Because all of this, let me see here. All of this, this is the Old Testament, all points to Jesus. All of it. All the prophets, even David, who wasn't a prophet but a king, even wrote about the coming Messiah. They should have known that he was coming. And they should have known how he was coming and what it was going to look like. And so he was doing these things. But he was a stumbling block. Listen, the reason Jesus was a stumbling block in the past is because he didn't conform to the mold of their culture. And that's why Jesus is still a stumbling block today. We try to mold Jesus into our image when the Bible says we are to be conformed into his image. Guys, we're being honest, okay? What we typically want is one of two extremes. And I don't want to talk politics, but it came out a lot in this election cycle. We either want a savior that's like a Santa Claus that turns a blind eye to anything bad that we've done and just gives us gifts all the time. We ask for these things and he gives it to us, right? We don't have to live a certain way. We don't have to be disciplined. We don't have to have a relationship with him or go to church or read the Bible or pray. But whenever I'm in a tough spot, Jesus, gimme, gimme, gimme. And we think that he's a bad God unless he gives us all these gifts. That's a skewed, bastardized version of what Christ is. Or we go to the other extreme. This is where we saw it so much. Is we have a lot of people who, who, who are Christians who say, well, God's just going to come down and smite my enemies. He's going to blow them all up. He's going to decimate them all. He's going to take care of all these people. Guys, maybe our prayers would be better spent as opposed to destroying our enemies. Why don't we pray for their salvation? Why don't we pray for them to change? Why don't we pray for them to have a revelation of who Christ is? Man, it is his will. Let's get all Jesus jukey, right? It is his will that none should perish. So it is his will that we pray that none should perish. That is his will. So we don't need to pray for people to get decimated. We need to pray for people to have a revelation of who Jesus is. And so because we've had these very extreme views of Christ, listen, within the church, we've had these very extreme and non-biblical views of Christ. Because we've had these, we have an extremely broken society you want to know why? Because we have an extremely broken church. We don't have a proper identity, a proper perspective of who Jesus is. So how is the world going to know who he is if we're unsure of who he is and what he is? Okay, so just from this chapter, let's talk a little bit about the identity of Jesus, okay? Just from, this isn't everything, but it's a snapshot. The first is this, and I hope I've made it clear today. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, He is God. There was nothing before Jesus. He is the creator of all things. All things were created through Him and for Him. He knows all. Every book of this Bible was inspired by Him and by His Spirit. He is God. He is the visible image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is also the way. I don't know if you knew that. Christianity was called the way before it was called Christianity. 
He is the way, the only pathway to salvation, the only pathway to God, the only pathway to that center spot on that wheel that I used to think existed. The only pathway to that is through Jesus. He is the mediator between God and humanity. He is the one that bridges that gap. He is the one that stands in that gap and connects humanity and God the Father, okay? He's also gracious. People often say in the Old Testament, man, where was God's grace? God's grace is all over the Old Testament. Some of the nations that he eventually destroyed were nations that would take children and hit their heads on rocks and kill them for for different pagan rituals. God showed tremendous grace in the Old Testament, and he showed even more tremendous grace in the New Testament and in this age that we live in now. Jesus is loving. He's compassionate. I love this. He's relentless. He's relentlessly running after us, pursuing us, trying to get our attention, trying to get us to look at Him and acknowledge Him and believe in Him and follow Him. He's relentlessly pursuing us. And again, we often don't see it because we have so much garbage around us. Our antennas are convoluted by all this stuff, but He's relentlessly running after us. We don't like this part about Jesus. He's the King, which means He makes the rules, and He's the Lord which means He makes the rules. We often want a Savior. We want someone to save us, to bail us out, to help us, but we very seldomly want someone to tell us what to do. Save me, but don't tell me that I have to be disciplined. Save me, but don't tell me that I need to separate myself from these sins that I've been a part of. So we love saviors. We don't like lords. We don't like kings. We don't want that. And he is also the righteous judge. Listen, I hate to end on a sobering note like we're going to end today, but, but I felt like this is what the Lord wanted me to do. We have lost, listen, we have lost a proper reverency of God in our culture. I'm not talking about non-believers. We can't judge non-believers. We can only judge each other. We can only call each other out because we know better. Solomon said, the beginning of all wisdom starts with a proper fear of God. And we have lost that reverency. We often think of God. I I heard a good friend of mine use this analogy of the Queen of England, that the Queen of England with her children would, would hold them, would read them bedtime stories, would even lay in the bed with them until they fell asleep and coddled them and held them and cooked them breakfast. But there are times when the Queen gets on her throne And even when the children walk in, there's a certain reverency that they must have for the queen on her throne. We have lost that with God. We think God is some sugar daddy that just gives us whatever we want. We think that we can live however we want, and he turns a blind eye. Well, they were at church. Who cares if they're living in sexual sin, right? Who cares if they're lying or stealing or treating people poorly? I just love people. True love is not enabling. True love is not letting people go to self-destruction and hurt themselves. He's a righteous judge, and there will come a time when he will take on the role of judge of mankind. In other words, the identity of Jesus is the fact that he is the cornerstone. If you know anything about building, the cornerstone is the first thing you put in place, and without that cornerstone, and you can't build the rest of the foundation, and you you cannot build up from that. And Jesus said in Matthew, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone? Jesus is saying, they've rejected me, 
They've put me aside. They haven't paid attention to me, but I am the cornerstone. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that produces fruit or chooses to follow me or acknowledge me. And here's where it gets important. Jesus said this. I'm quoting Jesus. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. He means whoever voluntarily falls on Jesus will be broken. But on whoever Jesus falls upon, they will be ground to powder. Let me explain to you what that means. Accepting Christ, accepting His Word, choosing to fall, choosing to be humbled, choosing to fall on our knees with Christ will break us. What that means is this. Whenever we come into a relationship with Jesus, whenever we repent for our sins, whenever we ask Him to search our heart, you're going to see how broken you are. You're going to see how insufficient you are. We're going to see how lacking we are, how insecure we are. And listen, guys, that's not a bad thing. Does it hurt a little bit? Yeah. Man, when you start to acknowledge the darkness in your heart, when you start to take an inventory of relationships you may have fractured and mistakes you've made, that hurts. But if we will voluntarily fall on the cornerstone and let him break us, Sometimes even more than what we come to him as he breaks us down even further. The Bible says in Colossians that he cuts off the corrupt nature of us, that he gets into us, that he prunes us like the gardener that prunes the beautiful rose bushes. And the reason why they do that is so it can be built up. When we voluntarily fall on the cornerstone, it hurts, it may be uncomfortable, we may lose some friendships and relationships, we may be broken down, but God starts to rebuild us. And he makes us into what we were supposed to be the whole time. But here's the sobering part. If we reject the cornerstone, the Bible says that every knee will bow and that will either be voluntarily or involuntarily. We do not want to be pushed to our knees involuntarily because it says when that time eventually comes, if we live a life of rejection of the cornerstone, there will come a time when we will be ground to powder. I know we don't like to talk about that stuff in church. I know we don't like to talk about consequences of a life that rejects Jesus. But this is reality. If there is a heaven that waits for us, for those that reject Christ, reject heaven, and there's only one other option. Now listen, let's not even talk about eternity though. I'm gonna get real with you guys and real with myself. Some of you have not voluntarily fallen on Christ. You have not voluntarily repented of sin and addressed the darkness in your heart. But I'm telling you, and if you're honest with yourselves, some of you are going down roads. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about this life. Some of us are making choices right now. We're going directions right now that if we don't stop and change, there's not gonna be anything left of us. There's not gonna be anything left of your marriage. There's not gonna be anything left of your family and your relationship with your children. There's not gonna be anything left of your relationship with your friends. You're gonna be destroyed. And not because of God. It's because we are running towards paths of self-destruction if we don't change. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about if some of us don't voluntarily hit our knees and fall on the cornerstone, our lives are gonna end up in ruins. Guys, I don't know if God, 
for probably two months. I don't know what God's doing to you guys, but to me, there's just this sense of urgency inside of me. And I'm not, I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I'm not one of those people, right? I'm not going to scare you. I don't even believe in a traditional rapture. That's for another conversation when I teach Revelation again. But I don't believe in that whole zap and half of us are gone thing. I don't think that's in the Bible. But I know that we're not promised tomorrow. I know that we don't have forever to wait on fixing our relationships and to get our relationship with God better. I know that. I've seen people whose lives have been ruined by addictions and porn addictions and abuse. I've seen people's lives who are ruined by pride and arrogance. And if we don't fall on our knees, some of you literally need to fall on your knees. There's something about the posture of just getting down in front of the Lord and just saying, God, I am absolutely nothing. I said it a couple of weeks ago, guys. We've got to start taking this seriously. We've got to start taking it seriously. I know it's uncomfortable. I know we all think we're immortal. But one day, if Jesus is correct, and I believe him to be, in the book of Matthew, we will all stand in front of the great judge. It says he will break open the books of our life, and he will look at every word and deed. The only chance we have, because we don't believe in karma. Karma believes that all the bad you've ever done is still there. You want to know the beauty of Christ? If we just ask him to seek our heart and forgive us, all the evil, all the evil we've ever done will not be in that book. He will open it up and he will say, well done, my faithful servant. And all God will see in me is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. But if we don't take it seriously, some of us are going to have a lot to answer for. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Father, humble us right now, God. My Lord, I know your heart is for your people, God. I know your heart is for everyone in this room. I know that you know every hair that's on everyone's head. I know that you see our deepest, darkest secrets, God. You see our insecurities. You see our scars. You see our pride. Today, Father, Lord, forever who's willing, God, I pray, Lord, that we voluntarily fall on you, that we will humble ourselves, that we would say, God, we've been prideful. God, we've been rebellious. God, we have not been repentant. God, we're broken.
Man, some of you guys in here need to hear, the Lord is gracious. You may have a lifetime of sin and shame and guilt, but guys, in an instant, if you're just honest, and if you will approach the Lord with reverence and humility and ask Him to forgive you in an instant, all of that evil is forgiven. The Bible says when we ask for forgiveness, it says that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. It even uses the analogy that our sins are buried in the deep sea. If we will just humble ourselves, God will hear our prayers. He may break you down. He may cut you down a little bit more, but he will build you up. He will restore your relationships. He will restore your insecurities and make you secure. He will give you a firm foundation that you can build your marriage on, you can build your family on, you can build your occupation and your relationships on. But we've got to be humble. We've got to voluntarily approach Him and fall on Him. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's men and women on my right and left if you need prayer, please don't be ashamed. Please don't be embarrassed. Just come up and let them pray for you. You don't even have to tell them what it is. God knows. But come up and let people in the church lay their hands on you and pray for you. Listen, I invite you, if you're in this room, your heads are by your eyes. If you want to get on your knees, guys, get on your knees. If you want to make yourself at home and pray up at the front or in the back, guys, this is your home. This is your sanctuary. Make yourself at home. Make yourself at home. There's communion all the way around you. You're welcome to take that and sit in the corner or get with your family or get with a friend. Be by yourself, whatever you want. Take that communion as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you. Represents the body and blood of Jesus. Represents that God gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not be ground to powder, but you'll have everlasting life. You have eternity with him, that life can be better now, now. But we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to be honest. We've got to seek his face. Father God, I love you, Lord. Bless everyone in this room. Lord, I love this church. I love this church. God, bless them, Father. Speak to our hearts. Shine the light of your Holy Spirit on us and expose the cancerous sin that is in our hearts. Lord, let us hand that over to you. Lord, let us change the way we think and act. Lord, let us depend on you. You are our rock. You are our hope. You are our firm foundation. You are the cornerstone. Don't let us trip over you, God. Lord, let us willingly fall on you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys. I hope you have a great week.